0: Visit plannedparenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We are the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great Wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, 25 a month, every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.
1: The Green New Deal has been one of the hottest policy topics all year. We haven't had that much of a chance to dive into it here on The weeds, so I was really excited to sit down with Julian Noisecat, who runs the Green New Deal program at Data for Progress. Uh, We talked about a lot of aspects of this sort of big concept on politics and policy. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today is Julian Noisecat. He is the director of Green New Deal program at Data for Progress. Yes. Um, that's fantastic. Uh, this is a subject uh, people have been asking about, uh, Green New Deal. Um, so I'm going to start, we, we'd like to start with a big dumb question at Vox, but I'm going to get like so dumb. Like wh- what is a what is Green New Deal?
2: So the Green New Deal is a progressive climate policy vision to take on the twin crises of climate change and inequality in tandem.
1: So let's 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 cash that out a little bit, right? So it's like, why pair climate change with inequality? I mean, in- inequality is important. Uh, there are many important questions, though.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So the reason why we believe it is essential to take on these issues together is that in order to uh, tackle climate change, we're going to have to to invest in in a major way in our energy sector, in transportation, uh, in buildings, agriculture, manufacturing, and that those investments, the way in which we go about that transition to a decarbonized economy needs to take into account the existing inequities in the economy. Uh, questions about where these investments will go, which communities will benefit, are really essential. They're essential to all sorts of uh, policy, whether you talk about housing, uh, manufacturing, etc. Uh, also, who those jobs will will go to, right, are are really essential questions. Um, and you know, to be real, the transition to a low carbon or no carbon economy. Is also going to require significant shifts in the way in which we do things, uh, most chiefly in the fossil fuel economy and and the adjacent industries. And we need to make sure that we are taking care of uh, the people who worked in those industries uh, and also the the communities that were polluted by those industries.
1: And mean, just set up like a like a broad contrast, right? If you're old like me out there and you remember. Um in the mid aughts, George W. Bush was president. Uh, nothing was happening on climate change. Uh, but there was a let a lot talk, you know, uh, John McCain was interested in the climate issue. He was running for president and there was like a bipartisan process that was sort of built around him, built around Lindsey Graham, and built around the idea of a um, cap and trade or a carbon tax, right? So this is like, you know, economics 101, how do you deal with pollution? You, you charge your fee for the externalities and then, you know, the idea to get Republican buy-in, at least the the idea of the bipartisan process was, look, this is going to be sort of minimal beyond that, right? Like we are going to charge uh, for the externalities and then we are going to take that money and either offset other taxes or give it to people in a kind of lump sum and then we'll just like let the market operate. And the Green New Deal is the, I don't want to say it's the opposite of that because like the opposite is do nothing. But it, but it's it's a sharply contrasting vision.
2: Absolutely, I mean, I think you know, it, not so long ago, uh, when I was a younger person, <laughs> uh, it was possible. You know, uh, Bush one talked about fighting the greenhouse effect with the White House effect. Uh, you know, McCain also uh, supported some cap and trade uh, policies. Uh, and, you know, I think that the way in which uh, Washington in particular thought about this issue began from the point of bipartisan compromise, bipartisan, bipartisan. Uh, and, you know, there's I, I almost like to think of the sort of climate wonks of this generation as a little bit parakeetish. You know, you, you ask them about climate change and they said, carbon tax, uh, you know, or something like that. And um, obviously, the politics have shifted mm-hmm. in a decade since then. Uh, you know, your colleague, Ezra Klein, has has done a lot of uh, great podcasts about uh, polarization uh, and the ways in which that is impacting our, our politics. And I think that, uh, you know, the real political difference between the Green New Deal approach and, uh, you know, a carbon price or carbon tax or a cap-and-trade approach is that instead of beginning from, uh, you know, what is – what is what we can get, um, you know, the the most moderate Republican, like say Susan Collins, on board with in terms of climate policy. But instead, you know, what what would be a full throated democratic approach to this problem? What would be the way in which we can approach this as progressives that can build um, not just you know sort of uh, consensus in in the Beltway, but also a broad sort of social Movement uh, that can win on the issue. Because one of the big uh, sort of takeaways from the failure of, of Waxman Markey, Waxman Markey, of course, passed in the House, never came to the Senate floor for a vote, uh, was that there was not that sustained outside social movement presence to push for climate policy at the time. And I think that one of the key insights and and exciting developments of a Green New Deal is that we're actually starting to build that. We're starting to build uh, the kind of movement that can, uh, when it comes crunch time, you know, take to Capitol Hill and put pressure on our elected officials to make sure that we get uh, climate legislation across the finish line.
1: So that means sort of working with um, the—I mean, if the the vision um of— The pricing focus was sort of work with the elements of the business community and the conservative movement that are most open to addressing climate change and find a way that's acceptable to them. And the Green New Deal approach is say, look, like work with the communities that anchor the progressive movement and see what they require out of this kind of plan.
2: Yes, I think that's totally right in terms of the the sort of political shift, which is a significant political shift. I think that there's uh, it just, and as while we talk through the politics, there's also a question here about, uh, you know, why begin with compromise position? Why not just begin with what we believe and what we want and then sort of compromise from there? I think that there's a lot of uh, sort of sense to that sort of theory of, of the game. Uh, and then I think there's also, you know, there's been a decade now uh, since the cap-and-trade conversation. Uh, emissions got a Trump bump in 2018. Uh, the Rodium Group has done some really great uh, sort of analysis of this. And the situation is therefore much much more dire and and the uh, actions that we have to take from a scientific perspective in order to limit warming to 1.5 or 2 degrees celsius are much more drastic uh, and actually just this month there was a very interesting paper in the national bureau of economic research uh, that basically made the argument that uh a carbon price would have to be in the hundreds of dollars per ton uh, figure in order to actually uh, get the kind of emissions reductions that we need. So I think at the same time as the political currents have changed, the science uh, has has become more apparent. The problem has has languished, uh, and therefore the actions that need to be taken have, have grown. And uh, I think that there's growing sort of, consensus, particularly among Green New Deal advocates, but I'd say also more broadly speaking uh, that a uh, carbon tax, a price on carbon is not going to be sufficient to achieve the emissions reductions. Yeah, and
1: it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, I wrote up, uh, this is a, a few years ago for for Vox, but it was about a water pricing plan that had happened in North Carolina. It was supposed to, um, you know, address water shortages in, in a sort of classic tech-speaking economics-y way. Uh, but what the researchers found, you know, was that, pricing intersects with inequality in an interesting way right that if you draw up a model in which most people have about the same economic resources then in response to a price people shift their consumption based on uh, essentially based on tastes and um that's sort of how it's supposed to work in a model right it's like the people who don't really care right the people who don't mind um the temperature being, you know, a, a little bit cooler in the winter, just like don't heat their house quite as much. And, and there's lots of small adjustments. But in the context of severe inequality, then people's response to a price signal is driven by their economic resources, right? And so you require a very high price to make a very drastic change in behavior. But then how people can adapt just has a lot to do with how much how much money they have, right? So these, these subjects really kind of do... Pair up, but so then in terms of the the Green New Deal strategy, I mean, what what so is can it? Can I just actually yeah. comment
2: on that that point? That I think that point is really important, what you just pointed out, uh, and the paper that I just referred to, they they mentioned that. Uh, Initially, the uh, carbon price, like 70% of that of that cost would be borne by the consumer, right? right? And that is fundamentally, I would say, an, an inequitable and regressive kind of tax, right? Ultimately, I believe we want the corporations to be, you know, who have contributed most to this crisis to be the ones who are uh, contributing to our, you know, pile of government revenue to... To take it on, uh, but in fact, it's going to be uh, you know rate payers. It's going to be you know folks who have to drive long commutes to get to their to their work site every day that are going to bear that cost. Uh, and there have been real already uh, political backlash to this, right? The the yellow vest movement in France uh, was in large part a response to Macron's. Uh, carbon tax scheme. So I think that uh, in terms of questions of equity and and who should be paying for this crisis, I think that uh, the carbon the carbon pricing approach has has really failed to uh, to take hold and and uh, be effective
1: globally. And, and Macron, I mean, I I feel like this was not always conveyed clearly in the U.S. coverage, but his sort of carbon tax charge was in the context of an overall set of regressive. Tax changes in France, where he was um, trying to bring down topping up tax levels, right? So you can imagine, like th- there are many different ways to configure this and have an overall kind of package. But you know what he was doing was very much a um, a regressive tax shift, which you know I think could have been maybe the basis for a bipartisan deal at some point, but but clearly. You know, hasn't been uh, in the United States. So, but so what? I mean, if if not this heavy emphasis on pricing, I mean, what what is the Green New Deal approach? What what do we do specifically?
2: So, I, I, I'm not quite as uh, forceful in saying that uh, carbon pricing can't be part of the policy mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a strong case that uh, particular sectors a uh, prices actually makes a lot of sense in terms of the way that you'd approach. Decarbonizing. But I would say that the the major sort of policy and intellectual shift to the Green New Deal marks in terms of discussion about uh mechanisms is firstly uh a conversation that 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 begins on investment Mm -hmm. when we talk about the green new deal obviously uh there's a lot of conversation about like how many dollars of public spending are going to go into the economy Um, alexandria ocasio-cortez threw out a 10 trillion dollar figure not so long ago Um, it's a lot of money uh you know jay inslee has i think uh three trillion committed in public funding which then leverages towards 10 trillion or i think maybe eight trillion actually um, and so I think that that conversation about investment is is first and foremost a major one. And I think to to just pause on that for a second, that marks a significant change I would say in terms of the way in which this country approaches environmental policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we've had a very regulatory heavy approach throughout our history and uh, sort of shifting towards major public investment as the way in which we tackle uh, ecological environmental challenges is a, is a major shift. I think the second is also an increasing interest in mandates. So this is like renewable portfolio Mm -hmm. standards, clean electricity standards. Uh, These would basically be policies that mandate uh, a scheduled uh, sort of Increase in uh, clean and renewable energy sources on the grid uh, by a particular sort of date. So the the most common ones that get talked about are uh, 2050 uh, nationally, maybe 2045 in the Inslee plan. Uh, or sorry, 2035 in the Inslee plan. Uh, we talked about 2035 in our data for progress, uh, blueprint for a Green New Deal.
1: So how how does that work? So it's like we have, uh, what do we get our electricity from? Exelon uh, here in DC? And, yeah. you, and you say to them, okay, now it's, it's 2021. Over the next 15 years, you need to get 100% of your electricity from... Renewable sources, yep. and then they—it's up to them. Probably that does mean higher prices, but it's like the the mandate is just placed on them.
2: Yeah, the mandate is placed on the the, the provider, uh, and then I think there's also a significant debate about uh, definitions of clean and renewable electricity that yeah. uh, are probably lost on on I, most uh, sort of observers of this. But this I, is also a really important. I, I want to get
1: it. into that that later, but I, I my question about these. Um, sort of of clean energy mandates is always, when you make them really ambitious, how do you make sure that it actually happens? You know, it's like if you tell an electrical utility, you have to increase your purchases of whatever it is, like solar power by some tiny amount, then you figure, okay, they'll just like, they'll go and do it, right? They may not like it, but it is what it is. But if you're saying, look, you've got to get all of the dirty energy off your grid on a 20-year timetable... That's like that's a that's a tough bill. And what if they just don't?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh then you get into a question of like uh financial sticks and legal carrots, right? Mm-hmm. Uh what are the I think you need to make make sure that the penalties for not meeting those uh those targets are are enough that you know they don't just blow you off right. uh you know and i think you also need to to have the sort of financial the direction of public spending into uh these energy sources to ensure that uh they they get to costs mm-hmm. uh you know as as soon as possible and then i think also this is where uh some folks might say that a uh, carbon price would actually be right. uh, a helpful addition to to the mix
1: so on this like the federal government doesn't, generally speaking, like own electricity generating facilities, right? So if you say, OK, well, we need more investment in roads, you know, it's like I know what that means. There's a highway trust fund. You, you can put more money in it. If you say we need another aircraft carrier. Like we have a program that does that. When we talk about, OK, we're going to make more public investments in uh, creating clean electricity. Like wh- what is that what does that look like? sort of on the ground.
2: I mean what that looks like on the ground is uh you know I mean and I think the first thing that people will think about is installing solar on on their homes. And I think sure. that that is uh you know a very uh, achievable real and powerful solution. I think it also shifts the balance of power away from The utility, which is often a a monopoly, and back towards the consumer, and there's actually a lot of places wherein the consumers can then sell their energy back to the grid, and can be quite empowering uh, for 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 people against sort of the broader systems in which they're in. I think also what it looks like is uh, so you asked about like so what the build out of of clean and renewable energy looks like. You know, I think it also so it's it looks like jobs. Uh, You know, I think that. the clean and renewable energy sectors are some of the the fastest growing in the country uh, you know there's immense opportunity for uh, sort of scaling up workers for those industries for uh, working class people to uh, get jobs you know uh, building wind turbines. Uh, these can also often be, uh, union jobs. I think it's really important to point out. So, uh, you know, the building trades, uh, it, particularly in the Northeast, have been very interested in offshore wind uh, projects, uh, and this can also be a major boon to um, some of these economies. So, so like a state like uh, Rhode Island, for example, could actually be a net energy exporter if you develop uh, because it's so windy. Because it's so windy, yeah. And so you, you know, uh, people talk about 100 energy as as you know, like a very very difficult target to reach. But actually, there are some places where maybe it could be uh, 150%. And that 50% is going uh, you know, to Vermont or something like that.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. So you're but so but so still in terms of like so we're gonna do it, right? So the federal government is gonna finance the construction of soft shore wind in Rhode Island or uh I don't know, I guess like utility scale solar, probably someplace where it's sunnier. Um, but like who gets the plant? Is this like a Funding that goes through electrical utilities and they go get it, it's money to states to go do things. The federal government is going to start uh, owning power plants. I mean, I guess the the federal government owns Tennessee Valley Authority, Mm -hmm. so we could do that everywhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think so. Um, One piece of this that I think is really important is that uh, there's an assumption, I would say, uh, from... Sort of more moderate democrats that the green new deal is secretly just a plan to nationalize everything and to sort of uh shift towards democratic socialism i actually think that uh you know my, my colleague Brianna gunwright has talked about public private partnerships as being part mm-hmm. of the approach i think that the way in which uh we actualize a lot of this stuff is still very much uh up for debate i think also uh in the same way that the original new deal Uh, sort of embraced uh, an experimental sort of um, vision of of policy, you know, throwing things at the wall and seeing what sticks. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I think that there's a lot that we will be learning very soon from uh, the Climate uh, Leadership and Community Protection Act in, in New York state, which is a big uh, climate law that was passed there. I think there's lessons to be learned from California uh, where they've done a mix of cap and trade and investment uh, and uh, renewable portfolio standards. Uh, there's also a, a law in the books now in, in Washington state. And so I think that there's, there's a lot of different ways in which uh, we can think about actualizing this uh, that would include, uh, you know, Public investment would obviously inc- include uh, private investment that that public investment leverages, um, and also you know empowers different actors throughout our sort of federal system. So it might sometimes be the federal government, it might sometimes be state or local governments, it might sometimes be private utilities. Um, and I think that uh, you know quite often we also are going to want to in- ensure that uh, unions uh, you know who have really been battered over the last sort of 30 years of economic and labor policy are key stakeholders at the table. And I think that's where you bring in things like offshore wind, utility scale, solar. And actually I think here scale, like you know going big is the kind of thing that um, that can get those those players particularly excited.
1: All right let's let's take a break here. I, I want to come back to that that New York law because it's a, it's a good blueprint.
3: B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15 percent off. Burrow dot com slash weeds.
1: So you mentioned just before that that New York state has recently passed a sort of big climate law that is, a, I guess, a, a kind of a, a state level Green New Deal or at least Green New Deal inspired?
2: So the advocates of it would be a little bit more hesitant to call it a state-level Green New Deal for very intra-left political reasons. But uh, for our intents and purposes, I would say that this is a great example of how we can do progressive climate legislation.
1: And so that means it has a coalition behind it that is environmentalists, but also... Labor also
2: yes. Racial so justice groups, right, right. So there was a, a group called New York Renews that led the campaign for uh, CLCPA, the pop star formerly known as CCPA. Uh, and what they what they did over four years is after one of the People's Climate Marches, uh, they created a table to discuss what. Uh, climate policy might look like in New York state. They included environmental justice communities. So these are communities of color on the front lines of pollution, uh, labor unions, uh, and green groups uh, as part of that coalition. And they started developing uh, sort of a policy approach. Uh, to climate that centered issues of, of justice. So uh, in, key to CLCPA is uh, investments in in communities of color, 40% invest- of the investments go to communities of color. Uh, they were pushing for uh, project labor agreements as part of the CLCPA. Those ended up getting watered down and taken out by Governor Cuomo, unfortunately. Uh, but it was really that sort of approach to climate where um, you know, communities could not just benefit from uh, sort of emissions reductions, but also investments in infrastructure in their community, uh, jobs coming to their community. That ended up actually building a, a successful legislative coalition, such that you know, uh, when 2018 rolled around and the Senate in in New York State flipped, uh, or. Not not exactly flipped, but we got the independent Democrat Yes, yeah, so it was a complicated out. thing. <laughs> complicated thing, uh, but anyways, uh, that that it became possible to uh, achieve this kind of uh, climate legislation, which I think many advocates and experts would say is is one of the strongest climate bills uh, ever enacted in the world.
1: So, what is the the labor piece of this exactly? Because perennially a sort of problem for environmental causes is that you know you have you, you have in the United States labor unions that are a little bit. Tenuous, right? So in some countries, you know, if if you go to Finland, right, like every large employer is basically covered by a collective bargaining agreement. So if you put forward an economic change that like puts some companies out of business, but then there's some different companies, people are still unionized. That's like baked into the cake, right? But America's not like that, right? So if jobs disappear in particular unionized sectors, even if some new employment opportunity exists, right, like that is still a blow to labor, and so it gets very tricky often to talk about large scale economic change so like what's the what's the what's the mechanism to kind of square that circle? I,
2: I think one of the most often cited cleavages in democratic politics is this environment versus jobs and unions. Mm-hmm sort of narrative uh, at Data for progress i should say that we have analyzed our own public opinion survey data on this issue and actually found that uh the story is a little bit overblown so the the union members who responded to our surveys were actually uh, union membership was one of the most highly correlated identifiers uh that that uh could determine your support for a green new deal. Uh just to
1: say of course, I mean the the biggest labor union in America right now is teachers union, right? Yeah. I mean a, a very large share of the of the union workforce is in service sectors is in uh public sectors particularly in education. A lot of the organizing is in, you know, digital media outlets like here. Um so yeah, I mean I I do think it's it's important to not like overly dwell on like a 1970s <laughs> vision of like what the union labor force is in America, um, but it's still true, right? Like when people were campaigning against Keystone Pipeline, yeah, right. There were um, people from the building trades who were like, "No, like we we want to build the pipeline. That's 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 what we do here."
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, so LiUNA put out a press press uh, release around Dakota Access, calling a number of my friends who are working on the campaign at Standing Rock thugs. So yes, this is this is mm-hmm. it does exist. Uh, I just want to I just want to foreground what I'm saying. With, yeah, no, 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 I agree. It's a little bit over overblown, I would say. Uh, SEIU, which is also one of the biggest unions, obviously, in the country, uh, just came out in favor of the Green New Deal. So I think we're making major inroads with labor, Um, but the the basic issue is is that there are a number of unions, particularly the building trades, boilermakers, uh, mine workers, who work in fossil fuel industries or fossil fuel adjacent industries. Those jobs, truthfully, are tend to be actually quite high-paying jobs. So, yeah. if you have a high school diploma, it's possible to uh, make a six-figure salary if you're working in some of these industries. Um, and truthfully, the the way in which we have, in the places that we have enacted, uh, a transition. Uh, it has not been particularly friendly to those workers, so they will often look at uh, companies like Tesla, for example, which uh, has a pretty anti-union stance, mm-hmm. uh, and say, "Well, if this is what you know clean energy looks like, uh, I don't think I'm super interested in that." And this is one of the big, big challenges that I would say advocates for a Green New Deal face. Uh, you know, we need to ensure that in the transition to a clean and renewable energy economy that we are taking care of those workers. Um, I mean, I think here again, Scale is actually, in some ways, our our friend.
1: How Uh, how does that work?
2: So, uh, Governor Inslee, in particular, and we we've worked with him on a number of his platforms, has talked about a a GI bill for fossil fuel workers. Uh, So, you know, traditionally, the conversation used to be about like you know job retraining and and that sort of sort of smaller ball type stuff. Uh, You know, we. Are very interested in things like uh, a federal job guarantee as mm-hmm. as being part of the conversation, ensuring every American has access to a job. Um, you know, I think in a in something like a GI Bill for fossil fuel workers, I think you know, sort of supporting them in the same way that we supported uh, veterans of World War II when they came home. You know, ensuring that they can transition to another uh, good paying job, another union job, uh, and ensuring you know through things like uh, the development of utility-scale solar, offshore wind, uh, these types are sort of clean and renewable energy developments that are more favorable to union organizing, more centralized. Uh, I think that there is potential. Uh, to get some of the more uh, oppositional unions on board, and I think this is actually being borne out in places like New York. In New York, uh, there is just a, a, a plan for a large off, offshore wind project, uh, and the building trades, which are the same sort of set of unions that um, said not nice things about my friends at Standing Rock, uh, you know, are, are on board with that kind of that kind of a development. And so, I think that. Those types of – at the same time as there is obviously going to be some opposition uh, as we phase out fossil fuels, which is what we have to do, um, I think that there will be opportunities uh, to bring some of the major unions to the table. And that's
1: sort of a a difference between when you're saying no to things, you have some group of stakeholders who are like, yeah, but we want to build that right versus if you have a, a dynamic that's about doing things right like you're you're building new stuff then you have sort of more things you can give away right I mean there's there's more jobs to be created there's more um things people can get on board about right and I, and I think that's an important part of the the sort of flip here right is that if we're talking about constraining the fossil fuel economy that generates a lot of you know, intense losers, right? Some of whom may be like incredibly unsympathetic coal barons, but a lot of whom are like pretty normal people, just like they're doing jobs, right? But if you're talking about, okay, well, we're going to like build this and that and the other thing, then you have something people can can kind of say yes to and, and embrace.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that for a long time, we uh, framed climate policy in terms of these trade-offs and this sort of issue of scarcity. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that the Green New Deal is aiming to do is is to do exactly what you just pointed out, which is uh, portray this transition as an opportunity, uh, one where you know unions, communities of color, uh, you know, people across america can can uh, you know win out.
1: So can we talk about some of the sort of um internal, disagreements and nuances here. You you wrote a great document about this uh, that's up on the Data for Progress site. Uh, but I think like one big one is that if you read candidates' plans, I, I don't specialize in this, but I, but I like to read plans. And so some people talk about-
2: You are unique probably in that renewable
1: way. Renewable energy. And some people talk about zero carbon energy.
2: Yes. Um, so firstly, I just want to say that the, the Green New Deal conversation actually has- I. Uh, Created more opportunities for convergence, I would say, than divergence. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that there are real issues that uh, various constituencies have different stances on that are going to be, that are going to matter as we sort of sort out how we. Uh, would would go about actually enacting a green new deal? So we, I wrote a uh, document. It's a fifteen page memo called an Insider's Guide to the Climate Debate. Uh, it includes, and we try to keep it updated every few if you, weeks. If you listen
1: to a podcast called The Weeds, like you were, you were really going to enjoy this memo. It's-,
2: <laughs> it's, I think, it's a pretty cool product. Uh, it it outlines sort of fifteen issue areas in sort of the green new deal curious uh, community, and then. Uh, sort of arguments on different sides of each. So some mm-hmm. of them have two arguments, some have four, uh, and and tries to sort of, you know, outline the the, the choices that we, we face. And right. hopefully in reading through that, um, help people actually get to a synthesis. I do believe in sort of the Hegelian view of, view of arguments wherein, you know, A, B gets us to C, but I don't know, sometimes it feels like A, B gets us to zero. Right. Um, so... On the the clean versus renewable, um, so this is a question. This is a question of definitions, mm-hmm. essentially. Uh, so renewable energy is uh, usually defined as like wind, solar, geothermal. Um, sometimes people were, will include um, biomass. I don't really think that that so biomass is basically uh, like wood and uh-huh. um, you know sort of agricultural products and stuff like that that you can burn. Sometimes uh, waste as well. Uh, the Natural Resource Defense Council would very much take issue with this being uh-huh. included. Uh, I think also that um, if we are cutting down trees in order to uh, create energy, that doesn't seem super renewable to me. Uh, another huge issue here, uh, one that has been particularly relevant over the last decade is the is nuclear mm-hmm. energy. Uh, nuclear is obviously a, a major source of carbon-free electricity. Uh, since Fukushima Daiichi, uh, you know the disaster in Japan, right. uh, it does has not had a great uh, publicist, uh, which is a bit of an issue. And then there's also, uh, you know, I'm I'm indigenous. Uh, there's a, a very troubling history of uh, what uranium mining has done to um, Indigenous communities, the sort of pollution after effects, particularly for uh, the Diné or the Navajo Nation in Arizona, New Mexico, the Havasupai and Yavapai in Arizona, um, and so it is you know it's a it's a it's a tough issue. Uh, also, you know, you have things like hydropower, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which we don't really actually have that many more places where we could build hydropower in this country. Uh, and it is also a place where there are tradeoffs between, uh, you know, sort of climate goals and environmental issues. Right. So-, so
1: like damming up a river is like not great for the wildlife
2: it's not great for the wildlife i would also say uh that you know i have friends and relatives from washington state where uh the salmon fishery is a big big issue uh native nations have treaty rights to salmon there and are often very opposed to uh the dams because they disrupt the salmon habitat uh so that's that's a major issue but it also you know obviously can be a a uh, mostly carbon free. When you actually build the dam, there's methane sure. issues related to that. Uh, but mostly carbon free electricity.
1: But in but in practice, right? Like most of the promising hydro sites have already been built yes. in the United States. But there is a big question about like we we clearly could build more nuclear plants if we were so inclined, right? Like the that technology works. Um, it costs money, uh, and people don't like it necessarily but like that's a th- that's like a real policy option
2: it is yes and there are there are some very vocal advocates for that right. i think that um i mean this is one where i think that there is are, are there are very strong arguments that i feel particularly personally close mm-hmm. to because of the indigenous rights issues yeah, what,
1: what, what is that i i I apologize. I, I'm not particularly familiar with that. So this is the uranium mining is happening in indigenous areas.
2: Yeah. So uranium mi- mining and and nuclear testing also mm-hmm. uh, happened in near indigenous communities. Uh, it has had residual sort of impacts on water uh, for a number of these communities. Uh, higher incidence of cancer. Right. Uh, you know, just not a very the history of how we went about nuclear is not. I mean, that's a there's a major reason why a lot of the environmental movement, uh, sort of in the 80s and 90s came out of a response to this, right. and that's because it was bad stuff. Uh, but at the same time, you know, as we are facing a, a global uh, sort of climate crisis, uh, there's there are some strong arguments in favor of. Of nuclear energy, um, you know, I, I, the, sort of the compromise position here that that I think is probably worth putting out is sort of the German case, mm-hmm. uh, which is that uh, sort of pressure to close nuclear plants actually meant that those that electricity was substituted with uh, LNG, natural gas, right. uh, and so actually the net impact on emissions was not super great. Uh, so I would say that the case for closing existing nuclear is uh, not. Not not fantastic, because you might actually get uh, replaced with natural gas, which is uh you know has methane emissions attached to it right, it's not
1: i mean we're we're in a margin now, right where th- the United States uses a lot of electricity relatively little of that comes from renewable sources. Mm-hmm. renewables are growing they could grow faster with more um, more investment, but also electricity demand is growing, and particularly if you if you electrify more and more of the transportation system that's like you need you need more electricity right and so at a certain point you could be at the margin of renewable substituting for nuclear but like where we are now it's like not clear that that's that that's the case yeah. right i mean if you if you if you shut nuclear plants down now what's going to happen is that natural gas plants uh run longer cycles
2: yeah exactly
1: right so that's like that's not great.
2: Yeah, it's not great. Um,
1: um, so, so the other thing that's that's in this piece is carbon capture and sequestration, which I, I remember this was uh, um, Biden's plan had uh, pro CCS uh, stuff in it that I think actually derived from uh, one of these environmental labor uh, sort of joint joint programs somewhere. Um, I've heard very negative things about that from some environmental people. Like, what, what does that mean?
2: carbon capture and sequestration. Yeah. yeah, so this is um like th- so this is like the like popping a thing basically on top of the the smokestack to ensure that the the sort of emissions get get ca- the carbon gets captured. Uh the issues on this one are sort of so a lot of frontline and fence line communities so people who uh live close to these uh these plants uh express significant concerns that uh there is a moral hazard here that uh, carbon capture and sequestration will prolong the life of uh, industries that and fuel sources that need to, to sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a, a major issue for uh, the environmental justice movement. Uh, on the other hand, there's also a very strong argument that uh, we need these kinds of technologies if we're going to be able to uh, meet our uh, our emissions targets moving forward. So the uh, it, there's often sort of, we were just talking about clean and renewable energy. There's also often this conversation about net zero. Net mm-hmm. zero sometimes gets talked. Sort of tacked onto that and this is basically the the question of like uh sort of using carbon capture and sequestration to uh you know on maybe like a natural gas or something like that to make sure that um we can actually meet the emissions targets but we're still using some fossil fuel right. sources
1: so so like certain things right both like planting trees and some kind of hypothetical like carbon scrubbing mm-hmm. can actually take carbon out of the atmosphere which could mean that there would be gross emissions right like some natural gas plants are still running but you're pulling enough carbon out that's that's net zero yeah P- people like to talk about these things argue about them a lot um, <laughs> yeah i know and this is how, um, how big of a deal is it in practice i'm, I'm always like a little uh confused sometimes so, by like 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 what are we really talking about i mean it is true right in germany they actually did do big investments in renewable electricity pair it with a nuclear phase-out and have not a big impact on emissions. So it's not it's not a totally theoretical trade-off.
2: So there are places where this has been a very live debate in in real life. So uh, a year and a half ago, I was part of a coalition of activists who uh, were lobbying about 45Q, which was a, a tax credit that was part of the big sort of Trump tax bill mm-hmm. uh, that would go to people who are utilizing uh, carbon capture technologies. Uh, and we were concerned that uh, that tax credit, uh, there was one version of it that could be used for enhanced oil recovery. So we were concerned that the that actually, so this is where you take the carbon that, that, that has been emitted, and then you actually use it to inject it back into uh, sort of your drilling site to access more oil. So we were super concerned as you know, uh, left-leaning environmentalists that sure. this is the way in which this would operate as effectively uh, a subsidy. Subsequently there has been um some modeling that suggests uh that actually like 45Q is going to be helpful in uh sort of scaling uh carbon capture and sequestration technology that's going to be necessary to meet emissions targets. And so I I personally actually don't know uh and I think that this is I wish that there were more advocates and and uh like wonks who embrace this sort of perspective uh, but I actually don't think we're going to really fully know what the net impact of this this tax credit is going to be uh, until it actually sort of it, it happens in real time, right? Uh, and so I think that these 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 debates matter about uh, you know are we arguing for 100% clean electricity or 100% renewable electricity, which would look actually quite different. Uh, and and I, I don't want to sort of downplay the extent to which these forward looking and and sort of theoretical policy arguments are going to have real consequences about the way in which we go about this. Uh but I also think that you know as we as we approach these issues there's going to be so many unforeseen uh technological developments there's going to be uh for any of these issues uh there's major siting questions right like where are you actually going to build this stuff for nuclear that's like one of the biggest issues. Wow. Uh and so I think that you know um Having a healthy sort of relationship about like the limits actually of our knowledge uh, is is super important. But then also leaning into um, just the, the the basic reality that we do need to just be like going full speed ahead in terms of building out the stuff that that we need, and I think sort of sorting through these issues as
0: they arise.
1: All right, let's take another break and, and come back to some more of these questions. Okay, so we've been talking, I think, mostly about electricity generation here, um, which is obviously an important part of climate change. Uh, but there is uh, more sort of buckets to it, um, and and like, what what does what does the Green New Deal mean for like people's commutes?
2: Hopefully, uh, it means that we are going to build denser cities, so more people can walk, uh, more people can ride their bike, take public transportation. Uh, And hopefully, you know, that means that you don't have uh, to—I come from the Bay Area where commutes have suddenly become two-hour affairs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so hopefully it means that, you know, uh, in a Green New Deal future, you don't have to sit in your car and be angry for two hours a day about the fact that you're in bumper-to-bumper traffic.
1: But also— some electric cars some
2: electric cars of course yes <laughs> uh yeah and so so it means there's going to be electric cars on the road uh it means hopefully that in places like the bay we have more bart uh you know more sort of zero emissions buses uh more bike lanes uh and you know sort of i think more smart and and modern urban cities i know mean, i know this is like one of your yeah well this favorite i i, I love cities <laughs> um
1: but this is like this is the area where it's like the, the technology is fairly proven, right? I mean, we bicycles work, subways work, even electric. I mean, I, you can't afford a Tesla, but like the cars work just fine, um, and 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 we know how to how to do all that stuff. Uh, but then you get into some of these.
2: Well, there is one actually issue yeah. that's worth mentioning, which is that uh, you know if we build out these charging stations, they actually are only as green as the grid that they're attached to. Right. Uh, so it is important that we have you know decarbonize electricity at the same time as we're building out sort of the infrastructure for zero emissions uh, right. transportation right
1: but it's like electricity daily transportation it's like you can see it right like right on the horizon right we we have clean electricity we don't have enough but like it's there we have green cars we have mass transit so we're just talking more 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 but then you talk about like um airplanes uh, where I think there was some, some Green New Deal controversy, right? Because AOC wanted to ban airplanes or or something like that. I mean, what, what do we do there? I mean, planes cause a lot of pollution.
2: I don't believe that AOC said she wanted to ban airplanes. I well, think I'm that not that's... saying she
1: said she did. But I, <laughs> I definitely saw on Fox News that she said that.
2: Yeah. So this is one of the big issues, right? Is that uh, Republicans ha- seized on uh, a few sort of, uh, they seized on an FAQ and, and, um, sort of did talked about cow farts and hamburgers and and airplanes. Uh, so these are real issues so there's a there's an interesting um it's from one of the the sort of Nordic countries I can't remember which one, but there's basically this proposal that you take one point five percent of GDP and invest it in uh, R&D for things to to address issues like uh, aviation. uh, And, you know, they think that that can can solve the issue. Uh, I think that also, you know, I mean, I'm going to be real. I think that like air travel for uh, a a significant fraction of this country has allowed middle class families to go and, uh, you know, see some of the great cultures of the world. Uh, It's a, you know, it allows Kids to go study abroad. Uh, I got to go get a a, a graduate diploma in the UK, uh, and all that sort of stuff is was enabled because of uh, aviation. Uh, and so there's there's uh, some real sort of complexity on this issue because it also is a major source of emissions. Uh, and I think this is one place where we we are going to obviously have to sort of uh, do much more research into um, what is possible without sort of jet fuel or maybe cleaner forms of jet fuel. But I think it's also a place where there might be a conversation about offsets, right? Right.
1: But I mean, so it's like, this is so, I mean, this is why politics is maddening, right? Because there's there's like so much we could do right, in the relatively short term, uh, particularly around electricity being greener, around transportation being greener, around, um, like, home insulation, which we haven't talked about, around home heating sources, right? Like, this is all, like, fairly doable, but you would have to, like, do it, right? And there's intense political controversy. And then there are these important questions to be asked about, like, what is the long-term solution for air travel, where we really don't know. But it's, like, when you raise shipping, that shipping also
2: another really big one
1: right yes um w- when you raise that question like this has been seized on there's a, i saw um there's a there's a sign now in Michigan about how Gary Peters wants to ban steak conservatives understand that if you if you have the debate on those terms right about like are there going to be airplanes and cows in the future that that's a loser for progressives so there's an impulse to be like no 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 that's not what we're saying but like air travel really does cause a lot of emissions,
2: yeah, and there's I mean there's a air travel does cause emissions. I think a lot of uh academic sort of conferences are grappling with this, right like right. is it ethical for them to be having these conferences where everyone has to get on a plane? Uh, I actually know some climate activists who will only fly once a year uh, so this is definitely a, a real issue. I just think that there are these um these these issues that we're going to need to sort out. Aviation is a big one. Concrete production is another. Steel production, uh, on, in some ways, agriculture also is a significant uh, issue that we're going to have to sort through. But I think that the, that um, you know, yes, Republicans love to seize on these these issues that we need to sort of sort through uh, as sort of political. Uh, baton's with which they can beat their progressive adversaries, but you know I think that there are also a lot of ways in which, uh, and this is I think what Data for Progress's sort of core role is for the progressive movement, uh, that we can there are ways that we can talk about these issues uh, that enable our sort of elected officials our movements to put their best foot forward. And so I think we need to have, at the same time as yes, we need to have these very wonky complicated uh, debates and and we need to learn more to be mm-hmm. quite frank about how we're gonna approach some of these issues. Uh, I think there's also ways in which we can engage very effectively on uh, political grounds with the opposition and and win. Um, you know, I, I actually think that uh, on on climate change, the democrats basically have a monopoly on credibility on Mm -hmm. the issue and i really like uh our odds you know taking on uh a conservative establishment that is deeply in the pockets of the fossil fuel industry and believes that global warming is a chinese hoax like i think that we actually can win on a lot of the issues if we take them on on those grounds
1: so i mean so so what does that mean though like what what grounds um do you take them in on right? I mean, if if they are going to come back at you with like you want to ban hamburgers, like what what do you say? And do you do you have to tell the vegans to fuck off? <laughs>
2: uh, so I I personally would not tell the vegans <laughs> to fuck off. I work with a lot of vegans. No, I'm sure you do. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of those. We, in the we, we have a movement.
1: lot of we have a lot of militant vegans here at the <laughs> Vox.com staff. There's a lot in the club. No, but see, to to me though, like this is part of what makes it politically challenging because like part of the to and fro is they'll be like. AOC wants to ban your hamburger. And then I'll be like writing an article that's like, actually, no, she doesn't. But then Ezra Klein, who I love, co-host of The Weeds, co-founder of Vox.com, has another good podcast. He'll come out with an article that's like, yeah, actually, we should ban hamburgers. <laughs> it's not that helpful.
2: Yeah, well, so uh, th- there's a lot to unpack here. So I think <laughs> firstly, um, the messages that we see as as winning on the Green New Deal and climate for uh, for Democrats are firstly the urgency and and moral... Uh, issue here, right? Like We need to give our children a livable climate. I think that that's number one. I think number two, uh, the jobs and infrastructure uh, messages, which are core, I would say, to the Green New Deal approach to climate policy have proven to be quite effective. Um, I would say also that a broader conversation, which the Green New Deal enables, not just about carbon emissions, but about other pollutants. Uh, so we want to talk about lead removal. We want to talk about uh, clean air and clean water. I think that that's those are winning grounds for us, and actually uh, can be quite effective messages for uh, folks across the United States. So in West Virginia, there was actually a race in which uh, those messages were relevant among conservatives. Uh, and then lastly i would say uh, the conversation about so i what did i say I so jobs just Oh, I think the conversation about justice is also a very important one. So I think uh, making sure that we are talking about uh, what this means for communities of color, uh, what this means for indigenous nations, frontline communities, for workers. I think all of those messages are are very powerful for us.
1: So frontline communities is a, is a phrase I had not been familiar with until until the rise of Green New Deal discourse. <laughs> uh, what, what, what does that mean?
2: So frontline communities are communities on uh, the front lines of climate change. On the so, front lines. Yep. So they are—they're uh, the communities that are adjacent to polluting industries. Uh, so this is places like uh, what's called Cancer Alley in Louisiana, uh, which is sort of right on along the Mississippi River, and. Um, is uh, adjacent to a number of, of different sort of fossil fuel plants. Uh, this is communities like Standing Rock, where uh, just a few years ago, there was obviously the very iconic campaign against the Dakota Access Pipeline. Uh, and this is also communities like the South Bronx, where uh, there are very high levels of, of asthma uh, because of sort of pollution in the air.
1: Yeah, I mean, we as as listeners will know we've done a a million uh, studies about, um, you know, particulate pollution Mm -hmm. um, and its impact on people, uh, which – is not, it's different from climate change, right? In that the, the CO2 emissions don't really care about your location, right? They, they go up into the atmosphere, the whole planet. I shouldn't say they don't care about your location. It matters how close you are to the coastline, but it doesn't matter how close you are to the source of the emissions, right? But particulates is, is different from that, right? If you live near a highway interchange, if you live near a coal plant, right? The impact on you is much, much more severe than it is on the typical person. And part of how we have... Um, dealt with those hazards historically is by uh, sort of dumping the pollution on poor people.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and so this is actually what the origin of the environmental justice movement. So the environmental justice movement uh, is the sort of post-civil rights environmental movement that was been led by communities of color. Uh, and this is sort of the pr- one of the primary issues that they organized around. It was originally about sort of toxic waste sites and the fact that uh, we were dumping all of our pollution uh, in communities of color across the South, across the United States, uh, and that this sort of became a, a way in which uh, people of color actually came into the environmental movement was through that issue.
1: And so you, you mentioned lead also as, as part of this.
2: Yes, so places like Flint. Uh, so we have, we've done uh, a lot of public opinion surveys. Uh, they're available on our website. We also make our, our data available if any wonky people want to check it out. Uh, and so, yes, lead removal is also a very popular uh, issue, also sort of, uh, you know, calls to attention uh, the enduring sort of uh, public health issues that are built into a lot of our infrastructure. So I'm sure uh, some of your listeners will be familiar with sort of Flint and the water crisis there. Yes, we have heard of that. Uh, there's also in, I I lived in New York for a number of years in New York City Housing Authority, public housing. Uh, there's significant uh, lead removal issues there as well, and I think that, Uh, You know, while it's not just now, it's while it's not directly about uh, emissions, obviously, I think that addressing those kinds of uh, public health and environmental health issues are really essential to uh, the Green New Deal approach.
1: Wait, so this is sort of a kind of broad question, but like the biggest criticism that you hear is like climate change is so hard. Why are you tackling on this other stuff?
2: Yeah, this is one of the biggest uh, criticisms. And I think that the issue here is that, like, the way in which people experience uh, climate change is actually not just through the parts per million in the atmosphere or the share of renewables on the grid. Uh, you know the way in which uh, people actually feel their climate change actually experience climate change and energy policy is uh, you know what they pay in their energy bill it's the quality of their neighborhood it's the jobs that they have access to uh, and so I think if we want to build uh, a, a winning coalition and actually create political durability to climate policy I think we need to sort of uh, address those sorts of issues that are sort of part of the whole, picture of of uh sort of the fossil fuel economy and um, sort of environmental injustice issues
1: all right so before i let you go one last thing what 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 should i have asked you about what what did we miss here Yeah,
2: so I think that one thing that we missed is the uh, sort of issues of diversity in the environmental movement that uh, I think are really core to the politics. So very briefly, uh, the environmental movement uh, emerged out of a set of thinkers who sort of ranged from uh, garden variety racists to eugenicists. Uh, and the institutions that they built and the policies that they pushed for uh, really reflected this. So the, the the best example are are the national parks, uh, which are so called America's best idea, uh, but were which actually were often built uh, at the exclusion of indigenous communities who are living there, uh, communities of color, working class folks who are accessing those lands. Um, and so I think that that sort of history of of exclusion uh, and and just sort of soft racism. Uh, has played a, a major role in which the environmental movement has developed in this country. It has been uh, a much more sort of white social movement than some of the other ones that we might think about, notably civil rights.
1: And there have been and there have been ties. I mean, you mentioned national parks, but also ties uh, between early environmentalists and sort of third world coercive population control yep. ideas, anti-immigration ideas. Um, so this sort of like multiple multiple legacies of. Connection between the origins of the environmental movement and and serious racial exclusion.
2: Yeah, serious issues. I mean, there is uh, there's one uh, eugenicist author who's like sort of cited by Richard Spencer types uh, and who uh, Hitler liked to read. I mean, this is this is a real part of the environmental movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that there's been for since at least the civil rights movement uh, nationally, there's been a push for uh, greater diversity, for greater interest in uh, the ways in which pollution disproportionately impact communities of color. Uh, and I think that this uh, so I think that the the green New deal has succeeded clearly in building a multi-generational uh, sort of environmental and climate movement Obviously the folks who we see pushing for this most often are young people but we also need uh, I would say people of color to be more engaged in this coalition and I think that uh, building sort of that next generation of the environmental movement through a green new deal is one of the things that gets me really excited every day
1: all right. Fantastic. Uh, so thank you so much, uh, Julia Noiscat. Thanks to um, our producer, Jeffrey Guild, and to Malachi Brodus for working as our engineer on this episode. And The Weeds will be back on Tuesday.